Good morning, ABC. I'm Sandy Hush, the Kids Director. And I'm Megan Miranda, Women's Ministry Director. And we just finished a great week of Make Waves VBS, and we haven't even had time to change out of our costumes. That's right. We had over 400 students coming on campus for VBS this week. We had over 200 volunteers from prep days, donations, set build, and 170 people working directly with our students this week. Yeah, and this is the most exciting news is that we had six kids decide to follow Jesus this week. So we are so excited to see how they make waves for him. Yeah, and next Sunday, June 26, we are going to be sending over 300 high school and middle school students up to Hume Lake. We would love for you to join us for a pancake breakfast at eight o'clock and 10 o'clock right before our services. We hope to see you. Yeah, and then the following week, Sunday, July 3rd, is our Church at the Beach Sunday. And so this is a time where we get to celebrate our returning Hume students with beach baptisms and a great barbecue. This is going to be at 1045. So there is no 9 a.m. service here on campus. So come on out at 1045 and join us at the beach. Thanks for joining us this morning. Have a great week. Well, thank you for tuning in. You've heard that it was VBS week this week. And basically what we encourage our kids to know is that they can make waves with the love of God, that what they do today can change the world around them. And we really do believe that. So every day this week, we pointed kids to the life-changing love of Jesus that has the power to change the world around us. We believe there's this ripple effect that happens like waves when one person responds to the good news of God's love and then lives like it's true. So we told our kids that it could change the world as they respond to God's love, as they realize that we're all sinners, we're all in need of a savior. But God, in order to provide that savior, sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and then to die on a cross for our sins and then to raise again on the third day from the dead, conquering death and shame and sin once and for all. And that if we just believe that, the work of God is to believe the one whom he sent. If we believe that and we follow him, then we live forever with Jesus and we're saved. We told our kids that if they believe that, if they're changed by God in that way, then they could change the world. See, it's, it's really bold to say that you can just go change the world. It's bold, but it's not wrong. But that's the clarifier there. It's that if you want to change the world, first you have to let God change you. If you want to change the world, first you have to let God change you. There was an evangelist in the 1800s named Rodney Smith who said it this way. He was saying, do you want to experience revival? You want to experience spiritual awakening in your life? He said this, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There, on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. That's how the world changes. One of those metaphorical chalk circles at a time, one drop after drop after drop that creates a ripple and then a wave. And without saying it, that's really what we hope for on Sundays. That's what we've especially been hoping for recently as we study the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew, that our natural hopes and desires to change the world and be a positive impact in that, that God would be changing and transforming us, that he'd be using the words of Jesus to remake and reshape our assumptions about everything and to form us more into the people that he envisioned us to be when he first dreamt us up. 
So today, we're gonna see Jesus again challenging us and raising the bar in how we live, this time with one of the most soul-bearing, motive-exposing conversations possible. It's about how we love. And it might not seem that obvious as I read, but that's really what it's about. It's about how we love and how we are loved and how that changes our lives. So we're in Matthew chapter five, verse 38. I'm gonna start by reading just the first four or five verses here, and it's about retaliation. So Matthew 5, verse 38 says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There was this other evangelist in the 1800s named Peter Cartwright. He was known for losing the Congress seat to Abe Lincoln, but he's also and better known for being a Methodist circuit rider. So he would ride from uh, town to town on a horse throughout the Wild West and also into Tennessee and Kentucky preaching the gospel. He was what you'd imagine if that was his lifestyle. He was strong, big, rugged. He baptized thousands of people. It was really incredible. But one time, as the story goes, to test the authenticity of his faith, one man came up to him after he preached and he slapped him across the cheek and then he slapped him a second time and Cartwright did not retaliate and then the man slapped him a third time and Cartwright punched him in the face and he said my lord said nothing about a third slap I can appreciate the plain reading of the text but I don't think that's the point here's what Jesus was doing first he was referencing Exodus 21 24 that says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. What was that about? Well, it was really an early example of one of the earliest law codes that we know of. It's called Lex Talionis, that demands that a punishment exactly matches the crime committed. So it would be a misconception here to think that what Jesus was doing was introducing mercy into a system that was previously only about justice. That's an idea we have a lot of time, that the Old Testament was just this harsh, rigid thing, and then the New Testament is merciful and loving, but that's not true. This law was always about both justice and mercy. Because listen, it served these two purposes. One, to reduce further crime, that was justice. But then two, to avoid excessive and unjust punishment, that's merciful. So it was always just and merciful. Here's the difference, and here's what Jesus was pointing out. The Old Testament law was meant to be carried out in the context of the institution of the community, not in personal relationships. So think more judges, courts, and rulers, not Wild West. But Jewish culture at the time had taken the command to basically give them personal license to pursue whatever justice they thought was necessary at any given time. And that was damaging and dangerous to their community. Jesus is saying, stop doing that. That's not what this was for. The law was always meant as a safeguard for you, not as license to go harm each other. It was meant as an act of protection. It was never condoning personal retaliation. Don't slap back. In fact, he's saying that need for personal retaliation, it actually reveals some deeper things that are going on in you. This need to get even, this right that you feel to get what's yours. That's a completely selfish desire a completely anti-kingdom way to live. And at its root, it really reveals your own insecurity. 
It comes from a place of not knowing who you are or whose you are. So you need to self-defend, self-justify, get even, and retaliate. So unapologetically, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, don't fight back when you're wronged or offended. He's saying to willingly forfeit these rights that, so that ultimately the only right we really cling to is our life in Christ. And before we move on, I would love for you to not be thinking literally physically about this because I don't want anybody to think that this is in any way about situations of chronic physical abuse. We, we just need to say that clearly. That's not what this is about. Jesus would never say anything at all towards condoning that. And in fact, I think there, there is a point probably where instead of him saying, turn the other cheek, if he were literally advising you, I think he would just say, move your cheek far away from that situation. If there's a situation of, of physical abuse, that's not what this is about. This is about other situations, uh, offenses, common offenses and hurts that you endure, um, most likely not physically. So he unfolds four quick examples that express the same idea. Instead of getting even, he basically says, give up these four rights. Give up, number one, your dignity. It says, turn the other cheek. To be slapped on the cheek in that context, in that culture, it was more than physical. It was about honor. This meant total disdain and contempt for someone to be slapped in the face. You can see this most clearly in Jesus before the Sanhedrin, before he goes to be executed. They're punching him saying, prophesy who hit you. And could Jesus have reacted? Yeah, absolutely he could have. But the truth is that he wasn't there to defend himself from the blows of some religious leaders. He was there to defend us from the blows of sin and death. And now we're not saving the world from sin and death, but as we follow the one who did, when we're hurt and offended, it's possible then to turn the other cheek and say, I don't have to defend myself because I already have a defender. So we don't cling to our dignity as tight as we would have. Number two, give up your security, he says. Let him have your cloak as well. So the tunic was like an undershirt and the cloak was something that people had like kind of an overshirt or a, or a jacket served also as a blanket. Most people had one cloak and one or maybe two tunics, two shirts. He's basically saying there may arise a situation where someone takes legal action against you and they're entitled to a certain amount such as the amount of your tunic. And if that happens, you should be willing to offer even more to show good faith, to show regret for any wrong you may have done, and to show that you're not bitter or resentful against the one who sued you. Basically, it's better to be wronged than to be full of spite and resentment. This is a statement that says Christians do more than what's required to make something right. Let me say that again. Christians do more than what's required to make something right. Number three, give up your liberty. When he says, go with him two miles, it was about liberty. It was about freedom. Roman law, see, gave a soldier the right to force any civilian to carry their pack for what was called a million. That was a little shorter than our modern mile. And the worst, probably for, for Jesus' audience, the worst thing was that often the oppressed Jew had to serve and carry the gear of their own oppressors. That was the most painful part of it. One commentator said it this way, that like all rights, freedom is not to be cherished and protected at the expense of righteousness or even a faithful witness. See, he's saying, here's what you have to do by law, but Christians go above and beyond. 
What a statement that is. To say, don't just go one mile, go two miles. To say, you, Roman soldier, who are oppressing my people, making our life miserable, you are an image bearer of God. He loves you and so do I. When we willingly surrender our earthly freedom, we're testifying to a freedom in Christ that the world can't take. That's why that's so powerful, to surrender liberty. And then number four, he's saying surrender your property. Give up your property and refuse to retaliate. He says give to the one who begs. Possessiveness is another facet of our fallen nature. And in some sense, we do have a right to the stuff that we steward. But Jesus is just saying that that right should always be placed on the altar of obedience to Christ. See, it's not about the number of slaps endured or the number of clothing items given away or miles walked. Basically, it's about where your security lies. That's what he's getting at. When you're insecure, you don't know who you are or whose you are. You can't afford to be wrong. That's too much to bear, too much to stand. But when you know who you are, you know your identity, your security in Christ, then the self-defense and that need for vindication just doesn't matter as much as it used to. George Mueller said it this way. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences and his tastes and his will. I died to the world, to its approval and its censure. I died to the approval or the blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I've studied only to show myself approved unto God. This was the same secure, well-founded, rooted in Christ sort of spirit that Abraham had when he gave the best land available to his nephew Lot. The same spirit that Joseph had when he embraced and kissed the brothers who hated him and sold him into slavery. It was David when he could have killed Saul who was trying to kill him, but he didn't and he let him live. It was Elisha when he fed his enemy Assyrian army so that they wouldn't starve. And then it was Stephen when he prayed for those who were stoning him to death. See, there is freedom in forfeiting these rights so that something bigger and more transcendent can be on display in your life. When you do this, the world can look at your refusal to retaliate, your refusal to get even, and they can see your unshakable security in the love of Christ. Then he keeps going. He talks about retaliation, but then he keeps talking about enemy love. So in verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So rabbinic tradition, Jewish rabbinic tradition, it did two things to pervert what the law originally said here. Basically, they left something out and then also they, they added something in that wasn't meant to be there. Here's what they're referencing. Leviticus 19.18 in the Old Testament. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. First thing they did was they left out the phrase as yourself. That's significant because it adds a whole lot of context and a whole lot of weight behind the verb love. Like what? Like what you would want, like what you'd want to receive. And second, they added the phrase, they didn't only take out that phrase, but they added the phrase, and hate your enemy. 
Just to be clear, that was never in the commandment. Exactly where and how that came about, I don't really know. But to love with no conditions was always the heart of this law. It's not like Jesus added in the, the neighbor or the enemy part. That was always the heart of even the Old Testament. Love your neighbors, love those who might not be considered your neighbors. So not only did they add in the idea of hatred, but culturally they had really limited the understanding of the word neighbor. Essentially for them, it came to mean people like us, people who look like us, act like us, think like us, vote like us. And Jesus just makes it abundantly clear how wrong that was. Later on, he tells a piercing story about how um, a good Samaritan, which would have been an oxymoron uh, to that audience, this good Samaritan proved their love um, by being a true neighbor to a total stranger. But here, Jesus just demolishes with his word this, this human-made boundary that had been cemented around the idea of love. He's saying, okay, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not love at all. That's just human nature. You don't have to wake up and try to do that. That's just what you will do by default, and that's not love. So once again, Jesus raises the standard, and he expects conduct that can really only be explained by a life that's been redeemed and renewed by his love. So that's the text. That's some explanation of it. But that really leads to the core question today. And we'll circle it all back, all back to where we started. That leads to the core question for me. How is any of this possible, right? Like how do I turn the other cheek and give up my cloak and go two miles and love those who I'm pretty sure I hate? None of that's wired into me. None of that is in my bones. Basically, what is the remedy for the insecurity that leads to retaliation and the fear that leads to hate? The answer is love. It is, and I know how that sounds. I know, of course, the answer is love, but really, it's true. 1 John 4.18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. We see love and fear as these two consuming, comprehensive forces that are diametrically opposed. And at any given time, there can really only be one that beats out the other, and then it's gonna drive what you're gonna do and how you're gonna live, how you're gonna behave. So at any given moment in your life, you're really deciding, I'm going to live out of fear, or I'm going to live out of love. And love makes you free. Love brings freedom. Love frees you from the insecurity that leads to retaliation and the fear that leads to hate. That's what love does. But of course, the tricky thing about love is that when I say it, everybody thinks something differently. So how can I say what love is? And that's where I feel a lot of freedom and a lot of liberty because I don't want the burden of having to define what love is. But I think Jesus should have the right to define it. Um, and of course I would think that, I'm a pastor, but here's, here's why I think that. Um, we, we read other places in 1 John um, that this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and he gave himself up for us to be a propitiation for our sins. Do you know what that means? That means that he gave himself as a substitutionary atonement, the one who would pay for the sins that we rightfully had to pay for. He would pay for that with his own broken body and shed blood on a cross. And then he would, instead of giving us the, the fate that we deserved, the, ultimately the death that we deserved, he would trade that 
and he would bestow on us his righteousness that he deserved. He would take a crown of thorns and give us a crown of righteousness. He would take filthy ripped rags and put on us a robe for his favored sons and daughters. See, every human to ever be born is born as a sinner. We're born with both a sinful nature, which means that we have the tendency to sin for ourselves, but also just as sinners with the status of sinner because our great, 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 great grandparents decided to sin and then sin entered into the picture. That's been our default forever. And ever since the Old Testament, the way that God had it set up was that death had to be paid for sin to be resolved. So there was a substitutionary system. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. That was the price tag on the sin of humanity. But that was never going to be solved by humans alone. So what God did was he, he, had, to find, he had to find some way to, to solve it so that someone could be um, fully human and also fully God. Someone who could be, live a, a fully human death so that that substitute would count, but also they would have the perfection that only he could ever really have so that it could actually be effective. A true, pure, spotless, blameless, sacrificial lamb, you could say. And so he did. He sent Jesus into the picture. And then Jesus says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. It says that we know we're certain that Christ died, that he was buried, that on the third day he raised again. And he appeared to so many witnesses. All I'm saying is that when, when you do something like that, and then you read, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. And then you read, this is love, that God sent his only son to reconcile us, to be propitiation for us. When someone says that, I just can't think of a better person to get to define what love is. That's what love is. The New Testament uses a Greek word called agape to say that that's the kind of love that that is. There's other kinds of love. There's romantic love, there's brotherly love, but this is agape love. This is the unconditional love of God that has absolutely no borders. It has no expectation in return. It's just, it's this one-sided, sort of one-sided covenant kind of love that just overflows from the heart of the Father. That's the love. That's what God in Jesus did for you and for me. And I would just pause there and say, if you've never responded to the death and resurrection of Jesus, I really think you should. I do. I think you should consider it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, just be reminded today what you already know. Be refreshed and empowered by his love. Today is June 19th, if you're watching it on Sunday. Um, Sunday, we're, we're preaching this in church. is June 19th, a holiday we call Juneteenth. So there are celebrations happening all over the country now because on this day, in 1865, General Gordon Granger marched into Galveston, Texas, and he read an order that would make good on the promise uh, made two years earlier in the Emancipation Proclamation. So standing on Texas soil, he read General Orders Number 3, which stated this, The people of Texas are informed that... In accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. Amen. The effective end of legalized slavery in the U.S. But of course, the abolition of slavery didn't mean the abolition of racism. That lives on. As much as you can't eradicate pride or lust from my heart, so racism lives on as a condition of sinful humanity. 1961, fast forward, 
A guy by the name of John Lewis was a 21-year-old freedom rider who hopped on a bus headed for Rock Hill, South Carolina, incredibly courageous young man, where he was working to integrate the bus systems. On this day, when he got off the bus, he was immediately met by a man named Elwin Wilson, who viciously beat him apart. Lewis recalls, at that moment, my training in nonviolent resistance kicks in, and I tell myself, it's not good enough to not hit back. It's not good enough to not hate. I have to actively love him while he's beating me. And that's what he did. He prays out loud for Wilson as he's beating him. This becomes a catalyzing experience for Elwin Wilson. For the decades to follow, he can't shake this moment. He can't get this moment out of his head. It just haunts him. And ultimately, it leads to his conversion. He one day is introduced to the radically reconciling, forgiving love of Jesus, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And now 13 years ago, in 2009, Wilson reaches out to Lewis. He confesses, he says, you don't know me. My name's Elwin Wilson, you don't know me, but there was this day in Rock Hill, South Carolina. You got off a bus and I was the one who beat you. I know it probably happened so many times you wouldn't even remember, but I was one who beat you that day. And he apologizes. Lewis had already forgiven him years before, but he says, you're forgiven. They reconcile. And then the two of them go on speaking tours together to talk about reconciliation. Why is that the most beautiful story in the world? Like, why does that make our hearts ache in solidarity and leap with celebration in the same breath? Why is that such a powerful story? Because it's a story of agape love. This love that Jesus has for you and me, this love that reconciles lost sinners to a holy God, this kind of unconditional, relentless, and reconciling love of Jesus, the kind that forgives 70 times seven times and refuses to retaliate and forgives criminals on crosses as they're dying and leaves 99 sheep to find the one and sees every prodigal son and prodigal daughter when they're still a long way off and sprints to hug them like he's breaking Olympic records. That's the kind of love that flows from the heart of the Father. It's who he is, it's his nature, it's his heart, it's his character. Most of us, I think we'd say we wanna make a positive impact on the world, we wanna change the world, we wanna make waves, right? We wanna say what we do today can change the world around us, we want that. But in order to do that, we have to let God change us. We have to let the words of Jesus rewrite and remake our assumptions about everything. We have to let his love be the thing that frees us from the insecurity that drives us to retaliation, frees us from the fear that causes us to hate. God begs us to receive that kind of love from him and to walk in it. He's waiting to give you that kind of love and empower you with it and help you walk in that love. Listen, if that's the case, if that's the kind of God who is so readily near and available to us and with us, we really do believe that what you do today, maybe even today, making a decision to follow Jesus, what you do today really can change the world around you. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the agape love, the unconditional love that you showed in Jesus on full display 
Lord, on the cross for us, paying for our sins in full. And then in the empty tomb, as you raised from the dead and you conquered sin and death, the punishments that we deserved and you gave us righteousness and hope and love. Father, you gave us a relationship with you that'll last forever. Jesus, I'm so thankful. So thankful for the things that you taught, the way that you you turn my assumptions on their head and you change the way I think about things. Lord, you give us these, these paradigms to live in where we're citizens of the kingdom and this is then how, how we're gonna live as your children, as your sons and daughters. Thank you for the guidance that we have in scripture. Father, I pray that as we attempt to be people who make positive impact on the world, who, who truly try to change the world around us for you, I pray that we'd be doing that out of a place of being changed ourselves. Lord, being radically transformed by the love of Jesus and that that would just be the overflow of our hearts that then makes those ripples and makes those waves in the world around us. Father, we love you. We praise you for all that you are and for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.